Hi, I'm Michael Hartman. I'm Naomi Liu. And I'm Mike Rizzo. And this is OpsCast. A podcast for marketing ops pros. And RevOps pros. Created by the MoPros, the number one community for marketing operations professionals. Tune in to each episode as we chat with real professionals to help elevate you in your marketing operations career. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of OpsCast, powered by MarketingOps.com, brought to you by the MoPros. I am Michael Hartman. I am solo hosting today. Naomi and Mike are unable to join. I'm sure we'll get them soon. Today, I am excited to have joining me John Van Pikering. John is a professional in digital marketing and marketing and technology with a capability to combine strategy with execution. He has over 10 years experience in delivering digital products, platforms, and campaigns for leading brands in an international environment. He is currently a product manager with Nike with previous stints with brands such as Heineken. He's also been a consultant and is the co-founder of Gift Shift, a solution for nonprofit organizations to enable easier donations from supporters. So, John, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. All right, Great let's, pleasure. Yeah, so let's uh, tell our audience, where are you located? I'm located, well, in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm today in a small village, The Build, which is very close to Utrecht. Ah, nice. So once again, we are trying to expand our, our coverage to be a, a global. So excited to have another person on from, from Europe. So John, glad to have you on here for our listeners who are mostly in the US uh, and mostly in B2B to learn more about marketing ops and MarTech in, in Europe, part one, and also from a, a little more of a B2C context. But I think as we get into this, we'll see there's a little bit of a B2B component to what you've done as well. So let's start with you just sharing a little bit about your career journey with our listeners. Um, you know, what are some of the key turning points or pivotal points in your career? Um, and we'll just start with that. So, so for sure, one pivotal point was uh, in 2010 when I finished my master's in business administration, which is a a broad a broad one. Uh, I had the opportunity to, to, to join a consultancy firm called Capgemini Consulting, um, not very based very much based on my specialties or my skills, but more on my personality and my experience in sports, which I very much related to uh, with my manager at, at the time. Um, and well, it was only after one year and a half that I was on a project from Capgemini with Heineken. Um, and Heineken at that time asked me to stay, which I for sure wanted to do so because Heineken is a great organization uh, based in the center of Amsterdam. Oh, great come on. At that, at that age, I know exactly what you were thinking, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that was a, a huge opportunity. Um, so I, uh, I ended up joining, uh, joining Heineken. Um, and there I had to had the luck with, uh, to, to work with a lot of great colleagues. But for sure, one of my managers had great faith in me. Uh, he gave me a lot of opportunities to grow in, my, well, in the eight years that I was at Heineken um, in different roles. So great to work with brands like Desperados, like Soul, but for sure as well with uh, with Heineken, um, to be able to do great things with the James Bond campaigns, with Formula One, with uh, the UEFA Champions League. So huge opportunities there. Um, however, after eight years, I also decided that it was a good time to pursue other opportunities outside of, uh, of Heineken. And that's why I uh, ended up joining Nike um, almost one year and a half ago. And um, again, great organization, great brand, and uh, okay. so can I ask lovely you a products. It's a totally random question, but you just referred to it as Nike. I'm curious, because I know the actual name is 
Nike. Do people inside call it Nike or Nike or do they, is it sort of open? <laughs> I actually thought the same before I joined Nike that it was Nike, but I got, um, I got told quite quickly that it's, uh, that it's Nike, not Sweet. Nike. Oh, interesting. Okay. Sorry. I, I wasn't I, I aware. Didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just, it was, you said that and I was like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. So I, I said, so, I, I so when I introduced you, I, I said it wrong is what you're saying. Well, yeah. Let's let's put it like this. <laughs> Nike it is. Nike. Okay. Well, good. All right. And you've been at, now at Nike for how long? Almost uh, one year and a half. Okay. Great. And, and during your time at Heineken, and I, I think at Nike as well, you've been doing kind of marketing technology kind of from a global standpoint, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, well, in, in Nike, I'm in the EMEA region. So working very closely with our global counterparts uh, based in the, in, the, in the U.S. Um, at Heineken, our headquarters, our global organization was located indeed in Amsterdam, where I was then part of the global organization, um, very much involved in marketing and technology, always working at that intersection of marketing and tech, trying to well, translate what our business, our marketeers would need to develop great brands, to translate that into solutions and technology and deliver those and make sure those solutions are being used um, and that we actually get the value from those solutions. Yep. Got it. Now, I just for selfish reasons, because my, my wife is in nonprofit uh, world, I'm curious. So, um, and just because it's kind of interesting that you did something really quite different with this gift shift. What can you share with our listeners just a quick overview? What is gift shift? Is it still around? What are you, what's it doing? Absolutely. So GiveShift is my, uh, my own organization that I've launched, I think, two years ago together with, uh, with three friends. And we're, we're now running the organization with the four of us. Um, and GiveShift um, has the ambition to deliver a donation platform that allows the millennials, mostly and primarily, to flexibly donate to charities. Because we saw this huge challenge of the charities to connect at well to reach the millennials and to connect with them and to attract them to actually donate to their charities. Um, at the same time, we also learn from all those millennials that they want to don't want to have those long-term contracts that they want to be able to flexibly donate, and that is something that we are trying to facilitate through a platform. But more than a platform or a website or an app, we want to be a beloved brand because we need to inspire inspired uh, the millennials to donate and we actually want to become a movement and that is a huge ambition of course a movement that um, activates our millennials our target audience to donate and that's where we are trying to make the difference for uh, for the world that's all right no I, I i really appreciate that just on a personal level but also i i just you know listening to my wife when she talks about strategy for for um fundraising things like that right i think there's a huge opportunity or if if you're a fundraiser and you're not really thinking about you know not just the top tier donors right in the the broader base that are going to be those future top tier donors right yeah, that's i think there's an opportunity there so thank yeah. you for doing that appreciate it I, I think it's fantastic okay so let's get into this like we promised everybody we talk a little bit about b2c and what it's like in europe in a global organization so let's you know, when we talked before, you were thinking that your experience with Heineken would be valuable to our listeners. So I know you just sort of quickly covered that you were there eight years in, in the intersection of marketing and technology, but 
maybe go a le- another level deeper about what happened during those eight years while you were there. Yeah, so hi again, I had the great opportunity to join uh, Heineken and was back in 2012. And I joined a department called the Web Center. And that department was relatively small. It didn't even have, I felt, a formal position in the organization, in the big organization that Heineken was. Just because digital marketing or marketing technology wasn't really a big, big topic yet. And it was mostly uh, back then being managed by the business itself, so by the marketeers or the brand managers. Um, so, the, real quick, how, how many brands? Because I, I mean, I was there's obvious Heineken, right? The beer, but what, what other brands is under the Heineken umbrella? So, I think in total, Heineken has over 250 brands. Okay, I did not realize. Um, but there are those are there are many many local brands uh, like you probably also have in the US which are under the umbrella of Heineken as a uh, as a bigger organization uh, but there are also some brands which we call uh, international brands for example the Soul Beer I think you would know that one yep. uh Tecate uh, the Tiger Beer uh, oh, okay. so that, those are all part of the Heineken okay I did not realize okay but it makes sense yeah. I mean the same thing happens with the large breweries here in the US as far as I know exactly and, and all those all those brands have their brand teams um, partially based in um, or fully based in Amsterdam from a web center so the department point of view we were the we tried to be the partner of those brands in digital marketing and technology um, but however, at the at first, we were just a supplier, almost an internal agency being the supplier of those brands. And what I think is a huge success is that we um, developed ourselves and evolved from just being a supplier and doing what's being asked for to really become a true partner, becoming end-to-end involved with all those, um, with all those brands, starting from the strategy, like how are we turning, um, how are we making Heineken a great brand? Um, not only on festivals or with the big sponsorships or with the beer itself, but also online. How can we do big campaigns for Formula One and successful campaigns for Formula One and James Bond? Um, and how can we manage ourselves effectively and efficiently? So not um, support every brand by brand with different solutions and with different uh, technologies, but really try to also from an IT point of view, be effective and, and scalable. Um, so in the beginning, we so, provided... So, okay, go, maybe this is where you're going. I was just going to ask, because like, when I hear web, I think you were doing websites and things like that. Is that primarily the kind of work where you were doing or were you doing some marketing technology stuff like, beyond that? Uh, so Yeah, so back then we, um, we, we divided ourselves into three pillars. One was around project management. So we just had our waterfall project management in place. We provided project managers who could bring and manage those projects and bring websites indeed, but also uh, apps to live from beginning till end. We had another pillar, um, consultancy. I was one of the consultants, so we had consultants for, uh, well, functional consultancy, we called it, and technical consultancy. And we had a pillar called operations, uh, where we managed domains, where we uh, managed the hosting, the infrastructure, etc., uh, And where we also done uh, parts of the, analytics and making sure that we could properly measure the effect and the impact of our campaigns. Um, we started very much off back then um, doing the websites. We weren't heavily involved yet in campaigns, but that also came uh, came our way. Uh, then apps came our way, social media, 
advertising. Um, so across, and that's that's where we ended up with. So um, a few pillars around data, around content, around advertising, experiences and platforms. And um, not only delivering those websites and apps, but also delivering and selecting the right uh, technology to be able to do so. Got it. So, and, and during during that time, you you know, you were there eight years. So, how did your like your actual role? What was it initially? How did it evolve? So, I came in as a consultant for digital analytics. So, my first role was to really make our um, marketers aware that we should not bring campaigns successful to life, but should bring successful campaigns to life. So, we should really start measuring. Uh, what the impact was of our campaigns rather than bringing a campaign to life, turning our back and, and go go after the next campaign and go after the next project. Were you we just, were really you just laughed out anything. of the room? Were you just laughed out of the room then? Well, at the start, yes. <laughs> at the start, the storyline of um, how successful a campaign was, was already ready, was already there. I was only asked to provide the right data, to provide the right numbers that actually support that story. Well, that's that's the other way around of how I would uh, envision it to be. Uh, and it was a long way, but we well, we finally got there and we uh, we really started measuring the impact of our campaigns and our platforms, etc. Yeah, I mean, I, I, for the, our listeners, right, I was just sitting here nodding like, yeah, I get it, right? The, everyone <laughs> wants to, like, so much effort is put into, yeah, any campaign that we've, any of our listeners have probably been involved with it. The idea of then actually taking the time to pause and review it if you don't have dedicated resources, which I think a lot of people don't, nor do, even if they do, they don't necessarily have the right skill set to do the analytics. Or they can do I, the analytics but can't really get insights from them. Uh, I think that's uh, that, that's totally fair. And uh, well, many don't have the solutions to collect the data or don't have the data at all. Once you have the data, indeed, how do you get actionable insights from it? Uh, and... Um, once you have those actual insights, do you actually follow up on those insights? And do you actually try to uh, optimize the campaign itself? Or do you try to take the learnings and to um, to take those into account for a future campaign? Well, that didn't happen a lot within Heineken at that time. It was just based on experiences. And um, yeah, a Heineken campaign is uh, quite successful already if you look at reach and if you look at sure. how many people would see it then yeah yes it is uh, successful quite quite quickly because you are reaching a lot of people if you put uh, sufficient budget behind it in terms of advertising right okay so these were mostly b2c campaigns yeah okay yeah, indeed so you were doing the, the the analytics piece after that did, were you, is that what you did to majority of your eight years there or did it evolve over time for your, your no role? i think that was uh, just maybe the first year um and i did that mostly for well i did it for all the brands but uh the one brand that was mostly interested in it was desperados so those were um yeah maybe maybe the the ones going more after the data-driven marketing than than some others uh and that's also one of the reasons i ended up becoming the uh the lead that well the digital marketing lead for desperados um and that that's from that that moment onwards, my scope expanded to not just Desperados, but then adding Soul, adding the Tiger Beer, adding Tecate Beer. Uh, so that's what I've done over the, uh, the next couple of years, being the overall digital marketing and technology uh, lead. So the 
what we call the single point of contact for all those brands, uh, making sure that we could uh, indeed deliver the solutions, but also deliver the platforms and the experiences. Okay, so I want to get into the international piece of this because if I, I probably probably know too much about beer, um, but if I remember right, Tigers in Asia, Asia somewhere, right? Philippines, if I remember right. Indonesia, something like that. Yeah, Singapore, but, Malaysia. Is, and then Seoul and Takadia, Mexico. And I forget the other one. The other one I'm not familiar with that you mentioned. But so it sounds like were you dealing with teams and stuff globally and all the stuff that goes with it, like translations and things like that? What were some of the big challenges you had then? Um, yeah, so we were dealing with a lot of operating companies, as we call them. So those are the countries uh, that Heineken is, uh, is working in. Uh, we had over 80 operating companies. And not of, oh, not all of them even equally mature, right? Um, and neither did we uh, really have conversation with all of the operating companies, but at least with about 15 to 20 to 25 on a regular basis, um, and making sure that we need that we um, supply them with the right material to. At one point, we had this global approach. We bring to life desfrage.com, and we tell France, we tell uh, the US, we tell UK. Here is your desperados.com. We need you to translate some of the copy, and then we'll make sure uh, that you will have your local version of desperados.com. But that's not how it worked. We thought so, but that's not how it works. Like every country the is different. The best laid plans, right? Exactly, exactly. And every every country is, is different. Um, and we couldn't really... Yeah, make that made that connection with the with the operating companies always as good as, as we thought. Uh, and we were perceived to be in this ivory tower, making all the decisions in at the at the center in at, at the global office. So that also hampered and hurt the relationship that we had with our operating companies. So that was um, one thing that we for sure had to change, and we did so by involving the operating companies more and more, making sure that we also brought in their perspectives, their needs, their requirements to make sure that we land a website as Desperados also. Um, in such a way to that is relevant to their local consumer. Hey everyone, it's Mike Rizzo here, and I'm interrupting your episode to bring you a brief message about, you might have guessed it, Mopsapalooza 2024, our second annual conference held in the vibrant city of Anaheim, California. We're hosting this hybrid event from the 5th of November through the 8th, and we would love for you to join us in person in Anaheim. But if you can't, please join us via live stream, courtesy of our sponsor, Excelivets. We're excited to offer an opportunity for professionals just like you to connect, learn, and grow among the best in the industry. Our event promises to be a highlight of the year, offering invaluable professional development experiences, live workshops, and of course, networking with your peers. Don't miss out on this incredible gathering right next to Disneyland in Southern California. Tickets are going fast. We will cap registration at 700 attendees. Secure your pass by visiting marketingops.com today. And we're looking forward to welcoming you to what is guaranteed to be an unforgettable event. It might just be the best event you've ever attended. But don't take my word for it. You can ask the community at any time. We'll see you there. Yeah, so it's interesting because I've got a little bit of global experience. I don't think not quite as much as yours. In particular, um, when I think about international from a 
U.S. going out perspective, which is more often than not what I've dealt with, even though I've worked for a Japanese-based company at one time in my career. The, um, yeah, I think a lot of companies break up the the globe into the Americas, EMEA, Asia Pac. Um, some will break out Japan separately, just because Japan's market is so different. But I, th- I always think of you know Europe and and. The Americas are relatively homogeneous, right? The way you go to market, the way business is done is fairly similar. But Asia, to me, is the biggest one where it's like each country is almost a unique market. Like how business is done, like the importance of having local, localized content translated. If you are, you know, you need to have the right kind of people, you know, on site. You're right. You can't just send people over and they'll generally do well. I mean, there, I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule, but I mean, did yeah. you find some of the same things where, and then did you, part of, I'm curious, as part of that working with those uh, operating businesses, did you like, as part of what you did actually, did you go travel to them, right? To help build relationships? Just curious. Um, not too much actually. So we had a lot of conversations, but a lot back then already virtual. So uh also, pre-COVID, we were uh, having all those virtual meetings and not traveling too much. So I've been once to uh, to Singapore, where I met a lot of my Asian colleagues who came from Malaysia, from Singapore, from Vietnam, to be indeed in workshops to identify what would be the best approach to bring Tiger Beer to life in a way that it's relevant for the UK and for Malaysia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, many of those markets are different and as such uh, the content should be different so you mentioned already it should be localized of course it should be translated but also in terms of the imagery that you're using that that should also be a proper fit to uh, to, to the local consumer in Malaysia and that's that's just one example but then you also have regulation so in Europe we have GDPR which is something that we need to adhere to which is I think uh, different still in the US uh, we yes, have... but just about any company, if they're dealing with, I, I'm sure there's some companies, especially smaller ones, that are just local businesses that don't have to worry about that. But just about any company I've worked for has, we have to assume there's going to be global visitors to our website, for example, and people are interested in our whatever product or service we're offering that are going to be outside of this. So we have to. I, I don't uh, know okay. a single co- company that's not thinking at least a little bit about GDPR compliance or privacy in general. And it is evolving in the U.S. What makes it hard in the U.S., we should probably do just a whole podcast episode about this, (laughs) is that um, it's not evolving at the national level. It's evolving at the state level faster than it is at the the national level. And so... Yeah. And how do you keep track... Of yeah. all those developments, if you're not on the ground, if you you cannot keep track of it, just at a at a at the global level, so that is a a huge uh, challenge. Um, in Europe, we have so many different languages, so many different yeah. currencies. If that would be well applicable to e-commerce, for sure. Um, so that's something that we that you need to take into account when when expanding from, for example, from US to to Europe. Um, countries with multiple languages. How are you going to select right. the right language for the right for the right consumer? That's all. All those type of things that you need yeah. to think. I mean, the only place near here that we have our friends in Canada have to deal with that, right? When they're exactly yeah. stuff in in, uh, in Quebec. So um, okay, so this is this is fascinating. I love the international connection. Your your point about being seen as on the ivory tower. I was 
again, our, our our listeners couldn't see me. I was like nodding my head vigorously because I've been in that same <laughs> boat. And I, the reason I asked about you traveling is what I found most uh, beneficial, particularly with Asian teams, is at least going over there and meet, meeting people face to face. Right? It doesn't have to be where they are. I think that's better. But your point about meeting in Singapore with the teams over there, I suspect your ability to communicate with them really dramatically increased after that face-to-face meeting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, and well, the communication, um, like being able to understand both tech and business is one of, I think, the key capabilities that a, that I needed uh, back then at Heineken. Um, and indeed, once you have met certain people and you have, have not only met them, um, in a work environment, but also after work uh, with a yeah. couple of beers, that makes life a lot easier and the collab- collaboration a lot more, well, fun and effective. Yeah, I I think it's totally totally true. And I mean, it's cl- I mean, it, I think it applies everywhere, but it applies particularly when you're dealing with people remote in other countries with different cultural sort of norms and things like that. Yeah, but we can all bond over beer, right? right? <laughs> exactly, we have the right product to do so. <laughs> all right, so so. You meant you sort of hit on this a little bit. Uh, I want to go back to it, but you told me when we were kind of planning this that you one of your your major accomplishments that you're proud of is was aligning. You said eighty plus. I think I have in my notes eighty two operating companies on their Martech stack and processes. You know, first off, is like is, did I get did I get that right? And then if so, or either way, right? What are some of the lessons you learned from that that would be helpful for our listeners? Yeah, I think so. Um, you're 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 partially right. So I think we um, we created a framework that was relevant and applicable to all the operating companies. And so this Martech framework, uh, we call it um, covered solutions for data. So how do we collect data? What kind of solutions do we and what kind of technology do we use to collect data, to store data, to make data available to other operating operating companies? We had one around content. So how do we create content? How do we store content? How do we manage content and share content across? So that was really our, well, partially our digital asset management solutions um, and content management solutions we had it around advertising, so that was well that that framework with data, with content, with advertising, with our platforms, so all of our websites that we had in place for our brands, and as well with all those experiences, whether it was on platform, so on website, or whether it was um, outside of the Nike environment, so for example on social media, that was all. To, to that framework, everybody could kind of relate, and that was applicable to everyone. And from there, we had a, um, a a process in place where for some of those areas, we had a global solution. And the, 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 the reasoning would be, if you need a solution to store data, you first go to global being an operating company and you ask for this solution. And if that solution um, can be used by, uh, by that operating company, that was the way to go. If that couldn't, if the, if you couldn't use it, and for that you needed to have a very good case, then you were maybe allowed to deviate from this global standard and to apply your own solution. And that can be uh, because of uh, of budgets, because of maturity, because of the use cases, and maybe even regulations. 
So um, that was kind of the process. And that I think that that's one of the big successes that we were able to land that process. But it didn't mean that we were in the end able to fully standardize our, um, our MarTech stack, but at least optimize our MarTech stack. Got it. Okay, so I just want to make sure. So you used the word framework. So framework included, um, how should I say, a recommended tech stack, right? Was key components to it and how those were going to be operated uh, along with the processes that would be used for building content, deploying and publishing it along with uh, tracking and analytics. And then I think the other part you said was advertising. So I get that. Um, for those operating companies where, for whatever reason, right, the recommended tech stack didn't seem right, was it more often because of costs or complexity or just simply staffing, right? And how did you, did you support them with staffing? How did you, how did that work? Yeah, so that was also, um, so staffing was, um, so we did a lot of support from the global organization. Um, and we also did quite a lot of times an assessment on the maturity of our operating companies in terms of uh, budgets, in terms of staffing, in terms of knowledge and skills. And um, if they wouldn't be mature enough for any reason to adopt a big global um, technology like, for example, Salesforce, then we could potentially deviate from it um, and um, decide collaboratively on what would be the right alternative for them. But that could very well be for budgeting reasons or for staffing reasons. Um, and, and sometimes it wasn't... Um, just staffing or budgets or skills, but just because of a local agency telling them that Salesforce, Salesforce would not be the right way to go, but mm. them pushing their local uh, local solution sure. yeah, for them for a for a commercial reason. Okay, got it. And like in some of these, some of these we talked about, right? Some of these markets are highly dependent on relationships. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and 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 those agencies collaborate with the local brand managers. On a daily basis, those agencies right. are also becoming true partners of those brand managers. And so they can very well convince them that they should go for a local uh, local solution. And again, that agency can for sure have a commercial reason behind it. And it might not be the right right way to go uh, at the end for, for Heineken. Because also we needed to kind of simplify our MarTech uh, landscape. Because if every operating company, and that literally was the case, could choose their own solution for which use case at all yeah then at one point you have a very large landscape which is not uh, manageable anymore yeah no I, and there's a, like as a from a corporate standpoint where you, i'm sure you get the benefit of buying power and things like that when you're buying at scale and so on yeah so that, yeah i understand i also sort of on the flip side understand the individual businesses or or um operating companies that they want to have a little more control over their own destiny, right? So, yeah, it's a trade-off, like either yeah, way. Yeah, exactly. And and as a global organization, you're you're not always very quick, right? And you also have to prioritize which operating companies go first and which operating sure. companies are later on the roadmap. And of course, a local brand manager doesn't want to wait on that roadmap. He wants to move. He wants to be on the market quickly. And yeah, and then yeah, it's it's quite uh, yeah. Tempting, I'm tempting to to go for a local solution. It is. All right. So um, again, I think we alluded to this a little bit. So the majority of the 
campaigns you initially supported were B to C. Is was there is there a B to B component to what you it evolved to? I mean, I'm, and I'm thinking that maybe there's something to do with like the distribution part of it as opposed to the advertising to support um, retail uh, purchases. Uh, so walk us through that. Is it, how much of it was B to B? How much B to C? Yeah, so personally, it was, um, I think for myself, 95% B2C. However, I was part of this digital uh, commerce um, department looking after the commerce technology, of which um, my department and my team looked after the marketing technology, but there was also a team looking after sales technology and more looking, focusing on B2B. And uh, within our team, we had a lot of conversation, okay, how can we utilize... Um, the solutions that I'm selecting for B2C that can also be applied for B2B and the other way around. And also, again, in order to be more uh, flexible, to be more scalable, and to, in the end, be more effective and efficient with our technologies. So a lot of conversations, um, because on B2B platforms, you need to manage your content, just like you need to do on on B2C uh, platforms. And if you need to do translations effectively and efficiently, why wouldn't we use the same solution across? So there were many use cases that were applicable to both B2C and B2B. And for those use cases, we tried to, well, simplify again our landscape and use the same solutions. Makes sense. Okay. And what I I like a lot actually is um, in the end, B2B is also kind of B2C, right? There's also one person sitting at the other other end of the screen selecting uh, and and buying uh, whatever uh, is best for for the company, but you can potentially just treat them as a a consumer too. Well, if we we had more time, I could take us way down a rabbit trail about what I think about like the content generated by a lot of B2B companies. And, And I start with websites where you go to their website and if you don't know anything about the company already, I'd say your your chances are about 50-50 that you'll be able to figure out what they do because too many of these companies try to be creative or not even creative, uh, clever, I guess is the right word, in, in not a great way about describing what they do mm-hmm. instead of keeping it relatively simple. And like, uh, it's just, it drives me bananas. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I can totally imagine. Yeah. Yeah. There are some, uh, some wins to be gained over there. Yeah, I mean, just at the end of the day, people are like people are buying from you. It just happens to be a context of they're spending somebody else's money, right, as opposed to their own. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And if you also like, if you as a, I don't know, someone, someone in B two B, if you can showcase this within the organization that you are driving uh, a particular solution, that can also be uh, one one very good reason to to buy something and then you're still that 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 one person driving it rather than doing this on behalf of the whole yeah you're doing it on behalf of the whole organization but it starts with yourself right so you need to have that that proper proper experience on that website on that app in order to be attracted to buy something on a b2b platform so yeah yeah it's Make it valuable it's, for the yeah. person like i said i think we could that could be a whole separate conversation um so um okay so you mentioned um, something about prioritizing the like the times in which you would kind of uh, uh, I don't know if it's roll out but you know start to implement some of these sort of st- the the framework components with different operating businesses. How you know how did you, this is a, another area where I have I'm pretty passionate about like how do you go through prioritization of that because I think there's lots of different ways to do it. Um, 
this is maybe even a, a level higher because you're talking at, at at a pretty macro program level, right? And I'm sure that you have, yeah, I think of it but internally as a, someone running marketing ops, right? I think about prioritization in terms of some version of an ROI or cost-benefit analysis that drives that against sort of capacity to deliver, you know, special project versus ongoing stuff and, and thinking about how do I prioritize? So it's not just a stack ranking. Yeah, you're talking about like, how do you apply this to complete businesses? So did you use a similar kind of approach to prioritization? Was it based on revenue levels? Was it on potential, customer size, market size? Like what did you use to help drive that? Yeah, so we mostly started off with the size of the business and the size of the operating company. So therefore, uh, Mexico would uh, a lot of the times be hard as like uh, the US, but also very much South Africa and Vietnam, who are really big operating companies um, in terms of volume and, uh, well, for Heineken. So that would be one of the metrics that we would for sure use. Um, we would also have a look at their local strategies and their local plans. Um, we have a, we had a, and Heineken still has a global strategy, but a global strategy is also made up out of all those local strategies. Um, and uh, all those local strategies are, um, uh, well, roadmaps are part of those local strategies and all their plans we need to take into account. And we try to as much um, also relate our plans to to, the, to those local strategy. Um, and I think um, and I think that was that was that was one uh, one of the challenge to to prioritize it because we we couldn't always do that very much accurate. It's also quite a lot of times based on, on gut feel, based on relationships and based on uh, smart politics that, that maybe operating companies apply to, to the conversation that they have with global. So it was a very, it was very difficult, but we tried, well, for sure, start with the, uh, with the size of, of the business uh, and then look at the local roadmaps and local strategies and try to support those as well. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. So I was about to wrap up, I think, but I have two, Two two questions I want us to finish up on. So one related kind of the follow up that, and two uh, second one a little more about what you're currently working on. So on that last one, so you mentioned some challenges, right? What are there any like major challenges or, or that you had in kind of rolling this stuff out globally that we haven't already talked about that you think oh this was like from a lessons learned standpoint we we saw this challenge is how we dealt with it and then. So that's question one. Second question is um, really more like, yeah, how did you, how are you applying what you learned there to what you're doing at Nike? Uh, I almost said Nike again. At Nike, or are you doing something completely different at Nike? I don't even, I don't think we had a chance to really get into that. Um, yeah, to start with your first question. So one of the, the key lessons learned uh, in my time at, time at Heineken and uh, one big challenge that we needed to, go, to overcome is who is the actual decision maker on technology and who is the owner of the technology? Um, so at Heineken, you had quite a clear distinction between marketing or business and IT. Um, in the beginning, marketing was asking for technology and we were just providing it. However, at one point, we also had our own view on architecture and the whole landscape and that we needed to be able to integrate uh, technologies across and to be more scalable and efficient, etc. So we were taking more and more the ownership and the control over um, the technology that we had in place and that we offered to our, um, to our marketeers. Um, and that was 
a friction that we needed to overcome. So they, they wasn't just them telling us what to provide anymore, but it was more of us um, telling them what the options could potentially be um, and then um, selecting the right ones altogether. And then also making sure it's um, in the end. Challenge. It's not just selecting, and you know that for sure in marketing operations, it's not just about selecting that one famous big technology and then waiting until the magic happens. There is There are people required to have the skills, to have the knowledge to operate those systems, those solutions. And that is very much um, a challenge in Heineken. At first, we didn't really identify who were the actual users of the solutions. And then once we identified those users, we needed to train them and that took a lot of time and especially if you take into account the turnaround of people it's a constant journey to make sure that the technology that you have selected are being used to actually gain the value out of those solutions yeah i mean that that your point about uh, understanding who the decision makers are really hits home and i i, I consistently run up against that right it's i always say i i want to know whose heads need to nod to you know, give us the green light to give us something. But I want that to be as small a number as possible, ideally one. And I really, really want to avoid people who could veto. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's really easy just to knock something down, but to, to commit yourself to approving to something is a, another deal altogether. All right. Anyway, again, another thing where I could get on a stump and talk for a while. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Nike and how what you learned may or may not have applied to that. Yeah. So um, very... Well, it's different than, than what I was doing at Heineken. So at Heineken, I was focusing mostly on our own platforms and to bring our campaigns and content across on those platforms. And today at Nike, I'm focusing more on the marketplaces. So working very closely with partners um, like JD, um, where, we all, where also uh, Nike products are being sold to make sure that we elevate the experiences for our consumers on those partner platforms as well, making sure that we... Um, offer the best experience, the right products, that we make sure that the products are available. So connect the experience, connect the data, and also try to connect the inventory. And that's where I'm um, working on today at Nike. Oh, okay. So this is a little, it sounds like it's a little bit of a mix of, I, I hate to dumb it down to merchandising, but it's a little bit of merchandising, business operations, and then marketing. Right, it's a little bit of yeah. It's the, the the marketplaces, marketplace partners, and and merchandising indeed. And um, and what makes it different? It's that's on a third for for me a third party platform rather than my uh -huh. own platform. And what makes it difference different is that today I'm in the region and not at the global head office anymore. So not having all the the power and that's uh, something uh, that is uh, driving me crazy sometimes. Yes. Yeah, so now you're on the you're on the other end. Of it. <laughs> yeah, I get exactly. it. So. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. Wow. This is great. Um, okay. So, well, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I think hopefully our, our listeners have, have gained a little bit of insight about some of the challenges with global kind of working on a global organization across different countries and markets, uh, and regions. So is there anything that, uh, we didn't cover that you'd like, I want to make sure that the listeners hear about this little nugget. Yeah. So in my view, 
uh, and I had a conversation actually uh, last week again in one of our team meetings. In my view, um, it's the relationship, it's the partnership that makes you successful. Uh, it's not you versus them, but it should really be a, a true collaboration, a true partnership between uh, marketing and, and technology or marketing and IT um, to collectively deliver value. And, uh, and it should be an equal partnership and not, um, uh, not a supplier relationship. So um, I think technology should not just focus on tech, but also should focus on the ability to make that connection with the business, to understand the business and to be able to have that conversation with the business, not just about technology, but also about strategy. Yeah, I think, I think for our listeners out there, I think this is a really, really good point in that I, I am a big believer that building relationships, whether it's a global organization or just in your own organization, if you're not thinking about, um, if you're interpreting somebody coming to you with something and you're saying, oh, they're doing this because they don't understand or they're just, you know, whatever, right? They're telling me what to do. I would encourage you to start thinking about, you call it empathy or whatever, but thinking about like understanding where their perspective is coming from, because I think there's a lot to be learned from that. And I think there's lots of opportunities, marketing ops professionals to, yeah, do something you don't necessarily agree is the right thing to do right then. But if it's small enough, right, where you can get, like you build some trust, right? Exactly. A, yeah. You know, it's yeah. a huge, it's a skill set that can be developed. Absolutely. And I very much appreciate all the, um, all the effort that Heineken was taking to really develop their employees in, in, in those type of skills. So many soft skills trainings on empathy, on listening skills, on asking the right questions, and indeed building trust and building, in the end, a true partnership. And we need to come up with a different term than soft skills because I think it's just – it's yeah, it, undervalu <laughs> it undervalues, I think, the actual value of those skills. So I don't know what they are because I'm – yeah, I was talking to somebody just like within the last week about how I, I think those are those are underrated skills. I mean, we it's it, they're harder to measure. Yeah, They may be harder to learn for some people than others, but that's probably true of just about any skill. So yeah. anyway, yeah, so I think that, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. All right. So, John, thank you so much for this. If people want to keep up with you or connect with you after all this, uh, because, you, you know, I'm sure once once this goes live, you're going to be inundated with all kinds of requests to learn. <laughs> what What's the best way that people can connect with you and follow you? Well, I, I think that would be really great uh, if we would have indeed follow-up conversations based on our conversation today. Um, and the best way, I think, to find me is on LinkedIn. Okay. So um, it's probably not the, not the most easy easy name to to type in, but once you uh, have the right name, you'll probably find me. Well, we'll we'll do our best to get get a link into the into the show description. I know that when I uh, I post about it, I will definitely link to you, so that way people can find you. John, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Um, it's always fun to get a nice perspective. I know um, coordinating this was not the easiest thing to do with our time <laughs> zone differences, but uh, no, no apologies. It's, it's life these days, right? So I'm glad we could make it happen. To all of our Likewise. listeners, yeah, to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us again and continuing to support us. If you have uh, comments, suggestions, feedback about all this uh, and any of our other episodes, please send them our way. If you are have an idea for a topic uh, or guests, please let me know or Mike Rizzo or Amy Lou who couldn't join today. With that, everyone, we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.